Welcome to the teacher and the preacher. This program is all about the importance of coming to understand that the Christian community and the Jewish community have more in common than we have been led to believe. Rather than seeing each other as against each other, we need to come to a point of seeing that the statement that our country is a Judeo-Christian nation is much more than just a mere statement, but truly reflects the reality of our nation as it was and should remain. Every week there will be an interesting dialogue about the issues that have divided Jews and Christians and how we can move in bridging the gaps and see that by talking about the issues, we can better move in the direction of having more unity. Unity that will heal and help bring together a nation that is under attack by the forces of atheism, secularism, and a breakdown of family values. Join us now for a discussion between the teacher and the preacher. Welcome to the teacher and the preacher. I'm the teacher, Harold Berman. And I'm the preacher, Dave Magira. And we've had a number of great guests, really great guests over the last several weeks, uh, actually really several months. Uh, so I'm sorry to tell you, our listeners, that you're stuck with just the two of us this week. Uh, but we're hoping to make up for that because we think we've got a pretty interesting and pretty provocative topic and the question we're really going to address is, uh, you know, you always hear about Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. So is it really a democracy? What makes it a democracy? And what are the problems? Uh, we all know we see in the headlines daily some of the issues that happen in American democracy right now. Uh, what's happening in Israeli democracy and, and how, how, is, how is that impacting things on the ground and, and really the world? Yeah, I've been very fortunate to be able to travel to Israel many times. And over the course of years I've been doing that, I've had lots of opportunities for more insight, more education about what really uh, goes on in Israel. Israel is uh, that very, very one unique place located there in that section of the Mediterranean in the Middle East area that is really an oasis. And part of what makes it an oasis is because of the government structure that they have. And e even at that, you know, you get you get to fight with a, a Jew over the fact that you just said that's a real good operational system because <laughs> where there's two Jews, there's three opinions. So, uh, but uh, by and large, you know, the government in Israel is really an amazing thing. And yet it it is. Um, it, it's definitely got some differences from what we would call a democracy or republic here in the United States. So, let's talk about that before we um, we talk about some of the issues that Israel is is has been wrestling with and 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 faces. Let's uh, let's lay a little groundwork for our listeners by talking about how is the governmental structure there in Israel. Uh, unique, uh, way more than just two parties. Uh, and uh, talk, us, uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, some things that would be helpful for us to know about uh, so that we can discuss some of the issues that arise out of this. So in very broad brush strokes, uh, there's a similarity to the U.S. in that there, you know, there are some checks and balances. There's a legislative branch, uh, the Knesset, just like there's a Congress in the U.S. There's an executive branch, you have the prime minister, and there's your judici judiciary, you have the Supreme Court and, and lower courts, and each has their, their area. Uh, beyond that, it, it starts looking a little different. Uh, first of all, before Israel became a state in 1948, the last country to be here uh, were the British. So... 
we adopted some of the uh, British way of doing things. And there are some aspects that look a little bit more like uh, the British parliamentary system than, than the American democratic system. So, for example, uh, in America, you, you have typically two parties. There might be a third party every once in a while, but usually there's it's really Republican and Democrat, and, and that's pretty much it. In Israel, as you said, Dave, uh, two Jews, three opinions. Uh, this is something Jews joke about all the time. Uh, Amos Oz, who uh, was uh, a seminal Israeli writer who died recently, uh, once said, you know, he, he really relished living in a country with several million prime ministers uh, <laughs> because everybody has their way of uh, you know, looking at the world and of course their way is right. So uh, it, it, I think everybody does that, but I think Jews maybe a little more so. So you find that in the Israeli political system. Basically, uh, I'll tell you just a quick story which I think uh, illustrates this. When I first came to Israel about 10 years ago, uh, it came time to vote in my first national election. And I was speaking with this Israeli woman and I said, you know, I'm having a really hard time wrapping my head around this because I'm used to two parties and I choose, you know, there's one candidate or another candidate and there's literally 35 parties running on the ballot. And she looked at me and totally seriously, she said, yeah, but there's only about 12 of them that actually matter. And <laughs> that, that really actually turned out to be the case. There's roughly about a dozen parties that actually matter. Uh, so you have all kinds of parties and each has their area. And what makes it nice actually as a voter is once you figure out where you where you stand, you pretty much can find the party that really represents uh, your issues and your part of the political spectrum. So when there's a national election, and we're going to have them actually coming up in a few months, uh, you have all of these parties running for the Knesset. There's a certain threshold of votes you have to get to actually have uh, a presence in the Knesset. And then there's usually about a dozen parties. Uh, the prime minister, by the way, is uh, in the the person in the number one slot of the ruling party. So, for example, right now, Benjamin Netanyahu is the prime minister, but he's also a member of the Knesset. It would be like Donald Trump being uh, also a senator. Uh, so it's, it's a little bit different of a system. Now, because Jews have so many opinions, uh, you have to have there's 120 seats in the Knesset. You have to have a, a 61, a majority, uh, to actually uh, lead a coalition. But uh, no party ever gets uh, 61. You might get 30 if you're lucky. So then you have parties coming together and forming coalitions. So, for example, Netanyahu's coalition, it's not just his party, the Likud. There's about half a dozen other parties that are part of his coalition. Uh, and just like in America, there's, you know, political favors are given for being part of the coalition and all that. So that's essentially how it works. And then, of course, you have the judiciary, uh, the, the Supreme Court and, and the lower courts uh, that that vote on, uh, you know, it's rather rule on, uh, you know, various matters as they come up, uh, much as the U.S. Supreme Court does. So uh, just uh, to reiterate, wh why so many parties and is there a limit so um, sadly, there there is no limit. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think what happens is that, uh, and, and particularly because of the nature of this coalition politics, so you will very often have a, a party come out of another party where you have, a say, a faction of a party. Uh, if you could imagine, let's say there were a group of Republicans or a group of Democrats uh, who said, hey, we're not happy with the mainstream thrust of our party. We're going to go form our new, our own party, our new party. 
uh, if that were to happen in the U.S., probably that that party wouldn't go very far. But in Israel, uh, it's actually very easy to do that, and it happens all the time, where you will have a group there like a little bit to the right of a particular party that they're in, a little to the left, and then they say, hey, we're going to we're going to form our own party, or they might say, you know, this issue isn't being addressed. We really, uh, the, for example, there was a new party that formed in the last election that was really just focused on economic issues because they said, you know, no party is really addressing this enough, so we need to be the party to address it. Uh, there's a right-wing party, uh, actually it was uh, just formed out of an old right-wing party, it's called the New Right, and it it came out of Likud, which is Netanyahu's party. And the idea was that, uh, you know, Likud, basically, they're not dealing uh, with settlements the way we want. They're not dealing with the Palestinians the way we want. So we, we need a different voice in the Knesset. So you could say, on the one hand, and it's a good thing because you, you have all these voices represented. On the other hand, obviously, coming to uh, something even resembling consensus is a little bit challenging. Yeah, it sounds like it. You know, it's a, a jigsaw puzzle that's got... Uh, what may seem like too many pieces in it. And nevertheless, it's a, it's, it's a system that works. It works in Israel. It works for Israel. Let's talk just a little bit about one of the things that happens there, like it happens here. And that is that, you know, the legislative branch, the Knesset, uh, makes these laws, passes these laws, institutes these laws. And then there are these judges that uh, decide to not just interpret the law, but basically legislate from the bench. And when we talk yes. about legislating from the bench, you know, it's um, it, it has it, it feels or smacks of the fact that they they have this power to impose their will on an entire nation or an entire group of people, and um, that's one of the things that Israel is. Uh, finding itself contending with in these recent years. And, and what's contributed to that, and how, uh, how real is this issue? So it's very real. Fortunately, I think it's changing a bit, but it's been very real for a number of years. There, there was a number of years ago, let, let me back up, uh, the way Supreme Court justices in Israel are picked is a little different from the U.S. In the U.S., you know, you have the president nominate somebody and then you have to have the advice and consent of Congress. Uh, and that, as we know from the Kavanaugh hearings, uh, can have its own uh, contentious, um, you know, issues. But here, the way it works, there's actually a committee uh, composed of nine members. Three of them are Supreme Court justices. Uh, you have two cabinet ministers, uh, two Knesset members, various other people. And they together, uh, they vote. They, they have names submitted to them, and then they, they vote. Uh, now, the weird thing about this to me is fully a third are Supreme Court justices. So you actually, if you could imagine the U.S., if the uh, if a third of the uh, say so of who's going to be on the Supreme Court was decided by the current members of the Supreme Court, that's actually the situation that we have, uh, where we actually have Supreme Court justices voting on who's going to be on the bench with them, mm. uh, which a lot of people have really called. It's the way it's been, you know, really from the beginning. But a lot of people have called it into question because obviously there, there's some problems with that. So. A couple of decades ago, there was a, an Israeli Supreme Court Justice, Aaron Barak, who, uh, if you can imagine the U.S. Supreme Court, you had Justice Scalia, who was, you know, they called him the rock star of the Supreme Court. And he was really, you know, he was a conservative justice. And he actually, the U.S. Supreme Court had been very uh, legislating from the bench, very left wing. And he brought 
the court really back, uh, you know, uh, toward a more conservative uh, w- way of, um, of adjudicating. Now, Barack in Israel, he was also a rock star of the, of the Israeli Supreme Court, but did exactly the opposite. He was on the left and brought the Supreme Court very much leftward. So you have today uh, an extremely interventionist Supreme Court. Uh, I'll give you an example. We had Danny Tirza on the show a few weeks ago. He's the architect of the uh, the Israeli security fence. Uh, if anyone missed it, uh, you can go to our website, teacherinthepreacher.com. Uh, the archive broadcast is up there. Uh, one of the things we didn't talk about on the show is, you know, they had to decide where to root uh, that fence. And they really tried uh, you know, for it not to go through Palestinian land, but there were a few places where it did. Well, uh, the way it works is a Palestinian doesn't actually have to go like you would in the U.S. through uh, through a trial court and then an appeals court and then the Supreme Court. He can go directly to the Supreme Court and he says, hey, it's going through my olive groves. And the Israeli Supreme Court, in several instances, told the army, "Hey, you got to move it." Now, that would be unthinkable in the U.S. In the U.S., if the if the U.S. Army said we have a legitimate defense and security interest here, typically the court would say, "You know, that's not our purview. That's not our area. We we don't deal with that." Uh, but not so the Israeli Supreme Court. Uh, we've had, uh, I can tell you, right near Efrat, uh, there's a town called Elazar. And there were some houses built, and there were a few of the houses that uh, there were some left-wing uh, groups from Europe that sued along with some Palestinians, brought it to the Supreme Court, and they they found a few of these houses went over onto um, ostensibly Palestinian land. Literally, we're talking by like three feet. Um, we're not talking about that it was on Palestinian land. We're talking about like it, it went over. So the uh, homeowners said, Okay, uh, no problem. We'll we'll cut off that part. Whatever's on Palestinian land, we'll chop that off. Uh, you know, we don't want to be intruding on their land. The Israeli Supreme Court, uh, apparently being left wing, wanted to make an example. They said, "No, no, you have to take down the whole house." Uh, and and that's in fact what happened. And the army came in and they destroyed the houses because that was the order of the court. Well, one of the issues that arises is. Uh somewhat the same issue that we have going on here in the States, and that is that, you know, you've got liberal judges versus conservative judges. Yes. And uh, a recent article that you and I are both aware of is the this article about, uh, is it Shaked? Ayala Shaked, yes. Yeah. And in, in that, you know, it, she has been a very key player in the role of um, the justice uh, venue she has uh, been a very key player and a, and a real high-profile person. Let's talk about her for just a minute because uh, some of the things that she is uh, having fingers pointed at her over and some of the things that she has done to, to better things uh, are, are quite interesting. So give us a little background on, on her as a justice minister. Well, so Ayala Shaked uh, belongs to, um, it's now called the New Right and uh, Party, and it's, it's actually the party that's to the right of Netanyahu's party, uh, which is really the most rightward party in Israel. And she's the number two person uh, in that party. So she is serving as the justice minister, which, of course, is responsible for the courts. Uh, some people actually see her, she's actually fairly young, and some people see her as a future potential prime minister. Um, material. And uh, some people actually even have likened her to Nikki Haley. She's a very sort of, you know, tough as nails kind of uh, get it done person. And uh, 
she came in and, and she basically said, no, 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 th- this isn't working. And, uh, you know, as I said earlier, a third of the committee that chooses uh, the Supreme Court justices are themselves Supreme Court justices, but two thirds aren't. So she was very careful in how she went about uh, appointing the rest of the committee. And uh, she basically made it her business that now there are a few Supreme Court justices that have been appointed to this committee that definitely are more conservative. And then uh, just as significantly in the lower courts, uh, since she's been there for now a few years, there are 300 new court judges, uh, most of them uh, much more conservative. So I think over the long term, that will probably create a sea change. Uh, this, the change on the Supreme Court is a little bit more incremental because obviously you can only appoint uh, so many new justices at a time. Well, what's interesting is I think you, you give a very good description. I think likening her to Nikki Haley is, is probably a, a very accurate um, comparison. She's sharp. If you see a picture of she's she's you think she's too young to carry the weight that she carries, but she's seasoned. She's sharp. She's 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 uh, disruptive to um, the status quo in some ways. And, and of course, she she. Uh, creates friction that way and gets fingers pointed her at her. But, you know, one of the things she's accused of is she she's accused of uh, causing some delegitimization of the judicial system by the way that she's making these decisions and, and doing this. But one of the things that she pushes back on is that she says, you know, the, the judges have begun step by st- step to detach themselves from the existing law and have begun to see themselves as the architects of the desired law. And yes, that's so, exactly right. Yeah, so she says the court has moved from being the interpreter of the law to being its policy officer. And I think this is one of the points that uh, Carolyn Glick makes in her recent article when she talked about, you know, concluding her, her column that she's been uh, writing for uh, quite some time because she's leaving that to go join this this new party as well but in there both of both of these gals seem to be talking about the same thing and that is that um when the Knesset makes these laws and then the judges kind of uh, go rogue on what they want to have happen and it takes away the power of the people and the judges are determining what that law really means which is not necessarily what the Knesset intended it to be. And so it really uh, impacts this law of return. That's one of the pieces that, that ends up being impacted by some of this. Talk to us about what, what is that law of return? What, what does that mean? And, and why is that such an important piece uh, for our listeners to know about the now, law of return? Are you talking about the, the new law that was the new law that was passed by the Knesset? Yeah. And, 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 and what yeah. the old one was. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, there's a new, there's a new, a new, what's called a basic law. Uh, this is actually defining Israel as a nation state of the, of the Jewish people, uh, which I think for probably most of our listeners wouldn't be controversial. Uh, you know, people think of Israel as the Jewish state. Uh, for, for some people that is controversial, uh, but it's never been enshrined in law. Now, Israel does not have actually a, a constitution uh, in the way that you would think of America having a constitution in terms of one written document. Uh, where everything resides, uh, but it does have what are called basic laws, and this this was passed by the Knesset as a basic law, and the basic laws basically act in the same way as an article of the Constitution would in the U.S. In other words, that that's it. Now, if you could imagine if uh, the U.S. passed a 
uh, a constitutional amendment, excuse me, amendment. There was a new amendment to the Constitution. Now, the U.S. Supreme Court would get to interpret what that meant and how it would be applied. But what they wouldn't get to do is say, um, no, we don't think that's constitutional because by definition it's constitutional. It's part of the Constitution. That's, in fact, exactly what's happening right now. This new basic law was passed. And now the Supreme Court is, is saying, well, we may want to rule on it and decide whether we think this law is valid. Well, this is actually a law that by definition is, again, they get to interpret it. They get to rule on you know, how to apply it. But to actually rule on whether essentially a constitutional amendment is constitutional – uh, you know, is is really overstepping their boundaries. And, and it's become extremely controversial right now in Israel. Yeah, and this is another one of those pieces that Shaked addresses. She says, you know, the Knesset is the constituent assembly which defines and determines the basic laws and that the purpose of the high court was only to interpret those laws. Well, how you decide to unpack that, I guess, depends on uh, you as a judge and how you view what the Knesset intended. But once again, this this creates um, uh, some interesting uh, situations. And one of the things that I, I think was an important piece was um, when, as you mapped out, that Israel is known as the Jewish state. Well, what, what do the Arab Israelis think about that then? And what do the Druze think about that. So, so that that that's a very interesting question and there has been some pushback but but here's the thing uh the way Israel has always been structured and this new law does not change that this at all uh is that it is defined as the Jewish state and there's there's always been this tension Israel is a democracy but you know in a pure democracy it would be okay whoever has the majority vote uh there's a basic understanding that Israel's a democracy, but the idea is supposed to be a Jewish state. Uh, so, you know, if all of a sudden there's 60% Arabs, it's no longer a Jewish state, and Israel is no longer fulfilling its mission as the Jewish state in the world. So, you know, we have that. But as a democracy, though, uh, all of Israel's citizens have equal rights. So every citizen has the right to vote, Jewish, Arab, Christian, Druze, it doesn't matter. And in fact, there is an Arab justice on the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, as there are Arab members in the Knesset. Uh, there's no, and, and by the way, there's about 13 Arab members in the Knesset. Uh, um, Arabs are about 20% of Israel's population. Why are there not more? Only because Arabs aren't coming out and voting enough, but that's totally in their hands. They have the absolute right to vote just like a Jewish citizen would. So, you know, this idea that, as some people are saying, that this nation state law is somehow curtailing rights is, isn't really accurate because uh, at the end of the day, before the law and after the law, everybody has the same rights to vote. Everybody has the same rights uh, in general. Uh, there will be Arab members of the Knesset. There will be Arab Supreme Court justices. You know, essentially nothing has changed other than that. Israel is formalizing uh, what has essentially been the status quo, but a lot of people don't like them, you know, naming it, saying that, yes, in fact, it's officially a Jewish state. Well, this is a piece that Carolyn Glick feels amazingly strong about. You know, this is a, this is a person for our listeners, if you don't know who Carolyn Glick is, she's a, she's a writer. She's, um, she writes a, a lot of columns. Her stuff goes into some of the most uh, major papers throughout the world. I mean, she's, she's a conservative. She's, a, she's an amazing gal. She's an American-Israeli. She's uh, sharp. 
And and basically, she's stepping away from doing what she's done for years that she's felt like she was gifted to do. But she's basically saying, you know, I've found myself returning over and over again to the study of basic issues of governance. Over the past several years, the term rule of law in Israel has been turned on its head rather than denote the dispassionate enforcement of duly promulgated laws. It has become, it has come to mean what President Reuven Rivlin once referred to as the tyranny of the rule of law mafia, meaning that the rule of unchecked lawyers. And so um, this is an interesting thing uh, to be able to see that she feels so strong about this. She would leave what she's been, uh, you know, doing as her career and then joining this new party to address some of these very issues that that this group feels is um, necessary because uh, some of the laws and the way they're being treated uh, by the judicial system uh, are a bit uh, foreign from what they think the Knesset intended. Is that what you would understand? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, as we know, Caroline Glick is a real force. And I think she sees, you know, this counterweight is now needed, just as Ayala Shaked has seen and, and has acted on it. I, I think, and I think, by the way, there are a lot of Israelis who are upset about every, everybody, just like America, everybody recognizes the need. You, you want to have checks and balances. You don't want to have a Knesset uh, that can't be reined in ever by the Supreme Court. You, you know, you want to have uh, some sort of ability to put in check when uh, something gets extreme. But at the same time, you, you don't want a Supreme Court that can just you know make up its own laws and, and just say, we're going to decide everything just because we feel like it. And, and that's what Israel has had, unfortunately, for, for a while. Yeah. Yeah, she feels like the justices uh, have the power to seize uh, hold of this and undermine the foundations of the state. It's a very interesting piece. I, I would just want to encourage our, our listeners, you know, the, these are some of the aspects that Harold and I talk about off and on of what's going on in modern Israel and, and what the people live with. But yeah, it's it's a pretty interesting thing. One of the hopes and desires that Harold and I have is to be able to have Carolyn Glick as one of the guests on our program this year. So anyway, w- w- buddy, w- we are pretty much out of time. we got to bring this thing in for a landing. So um, why don't you uh, give them the info that we I typically hate when that give. Happens. Yeah, I know. I know. Why don't you uh, let folks know how they can contact us? Absolutely. We, you can get a hold of us the old fashioned way by email, the teacher and the preacher at gmail.com. We answer every email we get. Uh, and sometimes uh, listeners questions we, we use on the air, uh, you know, when, when appropriate, uh, you can contact us through our website, teacher and the preacher.com. That's www.teacherandthepreacher.com. And there you can uh, listen to all of our archive broadcasts and you can also see the schedule of what's coming up. And you can go to our Facebook page, The Teacher and the Preacher, and there you'll get daily updates, fact of the day, where you'll get information about Israel, uh, Judaism, Christianity that you often won't find elsewhere. Love that. Well, my friend, great to be with you again this weekend. And as I always say, may the God of Israel who never slumbers or sleeps, may he watch over you and your family, all of our Jewish friends over Israel, and may that same God bless America. Amen. The Teacher and the Preacher will be back next Sunday for another discussion on how Christians and Jews can come to once again proclaim that the United States is truly a Judeo-Christian nation. To contact the Teacher and the Preacher, email them at the Teacher and the Preacher at gmail.com. 
That's the teacher and the preacher at gmail.com. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and give you shalom. <laughs>